You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Sorry, I was started a little bit late here. Hope you've had a good morning. Nothing like a beautiful West Texas morning. Uh, if you like this kind of weather, let me uh, recommend another book to you. Um, this one's kind of fun. It, uh, I don't know if it has any redeeming value, um, but it's called Football Revolution, The Rise of the Spread Offense and How It Transformed College Football. Um, so you guys are looking at me now. Um, the author's name is Bart Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And so uh, anyways, Football Revolution, The Rise of the Spread Offense and How It Transformed College Football. I read it uh, not too long ago and just... Um, it's a fun read. I, sometimes I feel guilty for reading something that's enjoyable. And um, so every once in a while, it's good to pick up something that uh, is no good. I also read um, the book, 11 Rings. Anybody seen that by Phil Jackson? You know who Phil Jackson is, you know, the basketball coach, sort of. Um, anyways, that was, a, uh, that was a great read as well. And so um, uh, anyways, pick up those books every once in a while. Well, let's pray and, and then let's get started. Father, we joke about the weather and uh, one minute we're freezing to death and the next minute we're working in the yard, but uh, I thank you more than anything that um, the sun rises and the sun sets and you remain sovereign and in control. And so many times in the scriptures, uh, we read, especially in the Psalms, how the heavens declare the glory of God. And we are reminded that you indeed are God of the universe and you are the God of our lives. I pray you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. We're gonna tread through a portion of your scripture that has been debated for centuries. So give us wisdom as we look into it. I'm sure there are just as many opinions and thoughts about this passage in this room as there have been through the centuries. So we pray for grace and mercy towards each other in this uh, in this study. Thanks again for these men, for the honor of speaking to them. And we already want to begin to pray that you would soften our hearts and prepare our hearts for when you're going to allow us to be and to uh, speak the gospel to people today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I need your help with something. Uh, I'm going to be with you uh, this week. I will not be with you the next, and I'll be with you a couple more. And then in April, another one of our guys will be with you, and then I'll be finishing with you in May. So, um, I don't know if I've ever taken nine months to go through uh, Hebrews, but uh, we'll get there by the end of May. But one of the things that I've done about every other year, and I just need to know from you, you know, as the weeks go by, whether you're interested in it or not. I think the first time I did this was 2007 or eight, and then the last time I did it was 2010. Uh, but I constantly get questions from men, especially about uh, transition in life, transition in career, and 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 it's not a midlife crisis thing. I just tell them to go buy a car. But the other issues related to should I try something different? Is the Lord moving me in a new direction? And this question was first asked of me about um, I want to say about 17 years ago by a good friend of mine. And I have actually just been working on this document that has eight tests of whether or not it's time for me to move on to something new or stay where I am. 
And it's really just a living document that I've been working on for 16, 17 years. And it's just uh, several tests that you kind of walk yourself through about where you are and where you might be uh, headed or needing to go. If you're interested in me teaching through that, I don't want to hijack our time in Hebrews, but I'd be, I'll be happy to do that. So as the days go by, you can email me or, or call the office or just shoot me a note or something and say, hey, would you do that? Um, and if nobody's that interested, I'll make copies of it and we can leave it over the uh, next few weeks, okay? So let's uh, get started in Hebrews. Go ahead and find your way to chapter five, and we'll see if we can get through the notes that are in front of you. A couple of reminders. Well, they may be, uh, I say they're reminders. They may only be reminders to me. I may never told you this. Please keep in mind, as we're reading through the book of Hebrews, that we're not real certain who the author happened to be, and I just realized my phone's still on. Dean, why are you texting me? Is my fly undone? Okay. Did you really text me just now? Oh, okay. I'll just give you the copy. Yeah. Wow. I know the answer to the first question related to you. So it's a growth issue. So anyways, um, as I was saying, um, contrary to Dean's presence, uh, the, uh, the writer to Hebrews, we're not real sure who it is. Some say Paul, some say Apollo, some are convinced of their opinion. I don't know who it was. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But another thing to consider, and especially as we begin pushing into some of the issues related to uh, the discussion of the temple and different acts of worship and what Jesus has done, the recipients of this letter that we call Hebrews or this, this book that we call Hebrews, the recipients were more than likely in the vicinity of Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem. And more than likely, they are already seeing the handwriting on the wall that, that there's probably an end that will show up. Now that showed up in 70 AD. It began in 66 AD, and then it finally came to fruition in 70 AD. But the reason that's important to understand is because for many Jewish Christians, although they had received the Messiah and received him as savior, for them just to walk away from the practices of their life and temple practices and temple activity was very difficult. It wasn't just one day they woke up and they received Jesus the Messiah and the next day they left their family heritage that brought them the Messiah. Uh, the, the closest thing we might have to that is we have many, many people in our fellowship that come from a Catholic background and their families are second and third and fourth generation Catholic families, and they come to the church and they hear the gospel and they receive Jesus, and, and now they're having to deal with an absence sometimes of tradition, an absence of religious action. And so what's happening is you have an audience in this, in this letter to the Hebrews, or this letter called Hebrews, where they have received a Messiah and they are separating from temple worship for the most part. They are separating from many of the practices they have done. And one of the questions they're going to have is, are you sure that Jesus is enough? Are you sure that Jesus the Messiah is enough? And picking up here in chapter five, going all the way through chapter 10 is the largest section over two thirds of this book of the author through the Holy Spirit teaching us Jesus is sufficient. And that is the overall theme of this book, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, I'm just now starting to read the Bible. I'm very curious about who Jesus is. Oftentimes we tell people to start reading in the book of John 
Now, Hebrews is not a very easy book to understand, but I would encourage you to maybe walk with someone through the book of Hebrews as well, because over and over, the teaching is very simply, Jesus is sufficient. So let's look down at your notes for here, here for just a minute, and let me remind you, uh, the book of Hebrews really divides into three different sections. We've talked a little bit about this. The first is really chapters one through chapter four, right there on your notes, It reads that Jesus is superior in final revelation and Sabbath rest of God through Jesus. Remember the first few verses of Hebrews talk about uh, in chapter one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, Reminder, everybody since the time of Jesus has believed they are living in the last days. And the writer of Hebrews points that out again. But that first section, and we've covered most of it all the way through chapter four and part of chapter five, is again, the author telling us Jesus is the final revelation of God. He completes God's revelation of himself. But now we move into the second section of the book of Hebrews. And I have written for you in your notes that it picks up in chapter four, about verse 14, and it goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. I would argue, and and you're certainly free to have your own opinions and your own studies on this and commentaries will differ. I think chapter four, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18 is one section And I think he's pushing to one point. So in other words, his first section, he's kind of saying this, hey, Jesus is the way God's spoken to us. And then he steps into another section to tell us, and he is sufficient for everything you could possibly need and for everything you will possibly do. And then he'll pick up in chapters 11, 12, and 13 and say, as a result of all this, here's what life is gonna look like to you. It is so important that he points out the sufficiency of Jesus because the writer, the the recipients of this book called Hebrews will probably lose their lives, lose their possessions and lose their homes probably in their lifetime. Because remember, Jesus around 30 or so, whether it's from 25, let's just use the window, 25 to 35 AD and his ministry consummating in that time in his 33 some odd years of ministry. It's only, it's less than 40 years from that time that Jerusalem is sacked. So you're looking at a generation receiving a letter that we're not certain when it was written, but it was more than likely written prior to the destruction of the temple. So this writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is trying to teach these people, Jesus is sufficient even when everything is taken from you. That's why chapter 11 is so important. He talks about the heroes of the faith who lose their lives. That's why later in chapter 10, he says, remember when you did not mind people taking your property, this is already happening to them. They need to know Jesus is sufficient. So look with me on point number two on your notes. And I've really guys given up on the practice of giving you lines to fill in and stuff like that. Uh, So I'll just put all the notes there for you. Let me read it to you and tell you why it's there. This whole section is about the once and for all mediated, sufficient, finished work of Christ for our salvation and for our rest. Jesus came, he finished the work he came here to finish. His resurrection solidified that work. His ascension to the right hand of the Father was to to mediate for us and it is a finished work. But it begins, and this is letter A, the necessary provision of a superior and permanent high priest. But we have to begin to figure out why the priesthood was insufficient to do what needed to be done for us. So this is what I want you to look at under that lowercase i, an insufficient 
priesthood. Here's what the writer is going to do. He's going to spend chapter 4 through chapter 10 showing us why the ancient or the, the priesthood gone before Jesus was insufficient for our salvation. And then he's going to show you how Jesus fulfilled that. That's going to be next week. But let me show you this and let's begin reading in chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 1 through 5. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He'll mention the phrase gifts and sacrifices over and over again for the next several chapters. Verse two, this high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, let me just keep reading for just a minute. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and now he's going to quote out of Psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk about that next week when we talk about the sufficient priesthood of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now again, we'll press into that some more next week, but now we're looking at this insufficient priesthood that was first described in chapter five, verse one through four. Now move over to chapter seven, chapter seven. And I'm gonna just show you what he talks about related to the priest. Go over to chapter seven. I think for the most part, I will review with you every single reference to this, I'll, I'll call it a, a man-centered priesthood, although that's probably a little bit off, but you're understanding what I'm saying. Chapter seven, go to verse four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Don't expect you to understand that until we get to it next, the next time we're together. Verse five, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So all, that, all that's showing you is these priests, how they receive offerings from people, but this is all going to change with Jesus. Go to verse 23. Again, I'm just trying to show you all that, that relates to the high priest here. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Let's read the next verse. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We'll read the rest later on. Now go to verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, like those other high priests. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And if you were to take a highlighter and read through the book of Hebrews, you're gonna, you're gonna circle, and you were gonna circle words that repeated. Once and for all is repeated. 
to show you again that Jesus finished this task. Go to chapter eight, chapter eight, verse three. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Notice he's not just talking about the Levitical priesthood. He's talking about the Arianic priesthood as well, descendants of Aaron and Levi. He mentions everything, all the priestly functions that covered all of the tabernacle and everything all the way into the Holy of Holies, which was once a year, is gonna all be wrapped up in the sufficiency of Jesus. In verse three, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. There's that phrase again. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So just, there's another reference. Let's keep reading verse four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, let me show you something. Stick with me here. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. There's some more transition. We'll see it the next time we're together. Go to chapter nine, chapter nine. We're almost done here. Then we'll kind of narrow it down. Chapter nine, gonna read quite a bit here. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And this is where um, you see Zechariah entering into, in Luke chapter one, whenever he has an angelic visit that tells him John is going to be born. born. It's not in the holiest place. It's outside of that. Verse uh, Three, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. That's one of my favorite phrases in this entire chapter. You know why? Because it's like the writer's going, okay, I can't talk about that anymore. We've got to keep going. Verse six, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest will go, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, here it is again, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Listen, that little section right there, he's telling an audience who is so familiar with these actions, who are walking away from this. He is telling them, imagine what he's telling them. This, this religious practice is doing nothing to change you on the inside, but Jesus will. He is helping them to understand the old is gone, the new has come, and there has even come a new high priest. And then skip down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, but that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. And we'll pick up on that when we talk about a sufficient priesthood. But look at your notes and let me just read these to you and and give some clarity. And then we'll move to something very difficult and very strange. 
But this insufficient priesthood is marked by its insufficient and human weakness, sin, mortality, and lineage. You and I could have been one of the priests that served in the temple if we were born in the right family. And and the reason I tell you that is because those priests were beset by the same things we struggle with. And that's why they were weak in their sin and mortality. And the writer told us they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Number two, insufficient sacrifices. In chapter 10, I already turned the page and you may have as well. But in chapter 10, verse four, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why every time you read the Old Testament and you get to sacrificial discussions, it's always screaming out for something more. These priests were repeating something that was not going to be sufficient. It worked in that it was looking forward to a sufficient sacrifice, but it was not enough. Number three, this insufficient priesthood was insufficient, inadequate, and incomplete mediation. What I mean by that is we're told they had to offer sacrifices for themselves and then for the people. Jesus, when we look into his life, we will see that his mediation is perfect. There's nothing between him and the father that has to be dealt with. So he completely and wholly and completely mediates for us. So let me just, now I'm getting ready to turn the car and smash your head on the window, okay? Because at that point, we hear everything we need to hear about this insufficient priesthood. But now go back to chapter five and six, because the writer here does something that... um, It's very interesting to me. He actually, it's almost as if he is beginning to talk to them about the sufficiency of Jesus compared to this this older priesthood or priestly practice and he remembers something he needs to address. And rather than saying, hey, let me talk about that a little bit later, it appears right here in this passage. So I'm actually gonna begin reading with you in chapter five, verse 11. Chapter five, verse 11. Actually, look at verse 10. It'll even see, help you to see some of this. He finishes verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 11, he says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. So it's almost as if he's talking about this and he goes, by the way, I can't even tell you anymore about this because you, you, you're hard to hear. There was a, an old preacher that used to come to our church years ago named Manly Beasley. And... Um, he would stand in the pulpit. He always came in the evening services and um, he was one of those preachers that as a, a youth in the church, he thought, why do they bring this guy? And then you grow up and you realize you remember the things he said. But I remember one thing he used to do. He would, he would lean over the pulpit about halfway through his message and he'd put his hand up to his ear and he goes, y'all are hard to hear tonight. You're hard to hear. And I think he meant that we weren't listening. But I, anyways, I, that's all I remember. So he's telling them, He's telling them, you're dull of hearing. But now watch what he does. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. So he's, he's, getting, he's kind of punching them. He's saying, you should be further along than this. There, you, are, you, are, you are acting immature. He keeps going, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness because they're a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is also uh, one of the little sections of verses that make people think Paul wrote this. 
because Paul says some of the same things to the Corinthians. I would argue a little bit later on, there's a section here that would aver towards Apollos. But anyways, we can just have a fight about that if you want. But verse one of chapter six, and this is the beginning of possibly one of the most debated passages of scripture uh, in the Bible. Uh, Anybody who wants to tell you you can lose your salvation, they're gonna come to this passage. Anybody who wants to tell you you cannot lose your salvation will find another way to come to this passage. So I'm gonna tell you, I would expect you to leave here this morning having to wrestle with this. I'm gonna tell you what I think, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you what I think and you're free to disagree and be wrong, but we're gonna keep going through that. So verse one, let us leave the elementary doctrine, interesting phrase, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. That's an interesting phrase. He's not saying Jesus is elementary but he's saying the basics of him being the Messiah, let's get on, let's move on. And then he says, and let's go on to maturity. Let's not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings. Now that word for washings, in our tradition, we might simply be thinking of baptism that you behold in the church, but there's more than just what we would consider baptism. This is probably a reference to multiple Jewish washings and practices that you would read about in the Old Testament and even in some other outside scriptures. And there's arguments going on about it. Should I wash this? Should I wash this way or do that? And he's saying, let's leave this. Let's, let's move on the rest of chapter two. Let's move on past the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, verse three is a little bit awkward because he says, and this we will do if God permits. That's a little bit of a cryptic phrase because you wanna go, what will we do? Are we gonna rediscuss these? And, and so it's a little bit cryptic, but let's keep reading. Verse four, for it is impossible, this is where it gets kind of difficult. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. If you write in your Bible, I use pencil, you can use pen. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle or underline the word enlightened. I will argue, this is my point, so you just take it for however you wish. My point is, this is a key word in this passage, critical word in this passage. And I'll show you the second critical word here in just a minute. This word enlightened uh, is a rare, rare word in the New Testament. Uh, This particular form is only used at best three times, depending on how you're counting. And it is only once even slightly a reference equivalent to the word salvation. And this word enlightened is not the word ever used for being saved. That is a different word. And you'll see it here in just a minute, okay? But he says, it is impossible for those who have been enlightened, this thing was shaken, and who have tasted the heavenly gift, interesting phrase, have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Those are all interesting phrases. Shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, have stepped back, have removed themselves. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land, now he's gonna try to illustrate it, which I'm, I'm not sure it's gonna help us, but it's, it's uh, what he was told to do by the Spirit. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it 
and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's sharing in the same rain. But what will it produce? If it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let's keep reading, verse nine. And he kind of changes his tone again. You know, now we speak in this way, but in your case, there he changes it again. He says, but in your case, to his audience, he says, but for you all, for for this group, he says, for y'all, beloved, we feel sure of better things, watch this, things that belong to salvation, not to enlightenment, but things that belong to salvation. That is the word that is used throughout throughout the New Testament. You probably know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That That is the word for salvation that's used here, not the word enlightenment. It goes on to say, for God is not unjust. He does not overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints like you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, all I'm gonna do is walk you through these four things that are, that are my conclusions on this passage. Please understand. And I hope, in fact, I don't think you truly own a theological conviction until you can work yourself through both sides of it. Let me, let me say that again. I don't believe you can own a theological truth until you can walk yourself through both sides of it and then you let the spirit solidify your heart in a matter. Let me give you an example. End times teaching, okay? Things like the rapture and the thousand year reign of Christ and things like that. There are so many people convinced of one view, but they have never thought about the other view that they miss the whole truth half the time. So what you must do in your faith, guys, you must do this. This is why we're, ta- we're, ca- we're told to test the things that we are taught and test the spirits. You cannot take as 100% fact everything I tell you. You can take it and you can say, sounds interesting. You can feel moved by it, but you're not a disciple until you work through it on your own. You realize this is the greatest challenge we face in church leadership when we counsel people because their greatest grasp of truth usually begins with these phrases. Well, I heard such and such say this. You see the difference? When someone says, I heard such and such say this, that means they haven't thought about it. So until you wrestle with it, it doesn't become yours. I I think um, it was Covey. I know he's a Mormon. I understand that, so just get over it. But he says... To know and not do is to not know. And to know and not wrestle through it is to not know. So I would encourage you, and I've used this phrase. um, I've even told people, I'm not sure you're ready to walk with Jesus until you come to the place where you think you might walk away from Jesus. Think about that in your own marriages. You see young couples, you know, and they're like, we just, God, this is the greatest thing in life. And we're like, hmm. Wow, that's, that's not a healthy marriage yet, right? I mean, we're like, until you're ready to just jump off a cliff, you're not ready to be married. So I, I, when, I, when I listen to people in their Christianity, just, you know, you don't want to discourage them. But 
There's also great encouragement of being driven to the edge of the cliff, so to speak, where truth finally becomes truth to you. My truth cannot be your truth, but the truth must become your truth through trial and through refinement. So that, I give you all that. So when you, you don't walk out of here and go, well, hey, Peyton said this, um, but I would urge you to drive yourself to disagreement. And then if the Lord brings you to a place where we agree, great. But then the greatest thing about the faith and walking with Jesus is we can learn to love each other even though we completely disagree, okay? So, except about football. So anyways, the, uh, uh, the reason this warning is so strange is it's almost out of nowhere, but it's so critical. So I'm just gonna read these to you and give you a few thoughts. And you'll notice I have started each sentence with there seems to be, okay? And that's so you can sort of go, well, maybe I disagree with you. That's great. There seems to be an issue involving a lack of discipline and growth on the part of those who claim to know Jesus. Now, I really don't think that that's debatable because he says it. He, he says, you know, you, you, you're not growing. And I also put in there very carefully, those who claim to know Jesus. So he's already saying, you, you should be more mature than this. You should be a partaker of deeper things. And let that be a challenge to you and I, especially if you have been in the church and claim to be a follower of Jesus for many years. If you have been in the church and claim to be a follower of Jesus for many years, and I'm going to, you say, well, how many is many years? Because everybody thinks many years is one more than the one they've been. So um, I'm not even going to give you a number, but gosh, I don't want to say this graciously. There is no way. Um, You've been a believer long enough that you should be discipling other people, but you haven't, that's immaturity. You've been a believer long enough that you should be probably investing in others in a small group or gathering people around you, but you don't, that's immaturity. You're a man who claims to be a man of God, yet you still make excuses after 10, 15, or 20 years of being a Christian that you're not qualified to pour into the lives of young people, to pour into the lives of children. And, and you say, well, I just don't know enough to do that. You would never apply that same principle or that same standard in your work life, ever, ever. So I, I just challenge you, you don't have to have a gift of teaching. But the, the minimal standard we apply for professionalism, we don't even apply in our maturity with Christ. Number two, there seems to be an issue with some who are mired in religious conversation and practice, but not Christ-centered maturity and action, parentheses, possibly saved. These people are participating in the life of this community. They go to church or the synagogue, they're gathering together. They are participating in things. They are discussing things. Some of the things that they're discussing, he tells us, are things about the Messiah, the repentance from works of faith, instructions about washings. They're readily available to debate issues, but there's still something else that he's warning them about. Let's go to number three. There seems to be those in the crowd who are enjoying the moment but are not saved. There seems to be those in the crowd who are enjoying the moment, but are not saved. Now, I will tell you, I think that point right there is probably one of the greatest struggles to be real, just sort of personal with you, Stonegate faces. Because it's somewhat easy to enjoy church and enjoy music and enjoy teaching and enjoy energy and enjoy excitement 
and be of it, but never in it. It is, it is very easy to become a part of something. I'll give you a goofy example. I'm not trying to be funny or mean. You've heard me talk about it. It, it was easy for me. I told that story of years ago, going to that A&M game, being told I had to wear the shirt and put my arms around people and rock back and forth. And, 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 and I know, you know, you know all our stuff, but it, would be, it was easy to get caught up in that. But I knew in my heart when I walked out, that wasn't me. I, I still had truth. And so I, so you, but here's what happens. Here's what happens Sunday after Sunday and Wednesday morning after Wednesday morning. You can be moved and enlightened by excitement and teaching in the moment, but never have the God of the enlightenment deep in your soul. That's why when, you know, it, it is, it is, People say, golly, it's a big church, it's a growing church. Momentum in the church will kill people because sometimes the gospel gets hidden in the momentum of the moment. And it's easy for these people to be surrounded by religious practice, to be surrounded by a feeling of religion, to be surrounded by the people who claim Jesus, to feel the enlightenment and share in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was very easy for these people to be moved by what they're feeling. And I hear that all the time. I'm not afraid of your feelings. This is not the first time in history we deal with it. Jonathan Edwards had to write about this during one of the Reformation periods. And, and so when he wrote about what they called affections, I'm not afraid of your feelings, but do you know how many times I hear people say this? I say, tell me about your walk with Jesus. Tell me about when Jesus changed your life. And I always get this phrase, I really feel like that was during this season. There's nothing wrong with that. And some of you guys are like, well, I kind of feel that way too. But just to feel it doesn't mean it became true. Let's go back to our marriage example. You don't really learn how much you're in love until you don't feel like you're in love, right? I mean, eventually love becomes this discipline. It becomes, I, we are committed and when, you, when it comes to your walk with Jesus, it is more than just religious practice. It is more than just sharing in the Holy Spirit. It is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there are people here who it seems, just to use the key words, are enjoying the moment, but may not be saved. They are enlightened. He does not say it is impossible for those who have been saved. He said, is it impossible for those who have been enlightened? And enlightenment in the scriptures never refers to the full conversion of the soul, ever. So let's go on to the next one. There seems to be a grave warning about the highly enlightened and emotional experience of religion. I want you to look at this passage with me. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Again, as you're looking at Matthew 12, this, this issue, I'm just kind of shooting straight with you here and honest with you. This issue scares me to death about, and, and I know Stonegate is not everybody's church here. So when I say our church, I'm not trying to co-opt you in or anything like that, but this scares me, terribly scares me about Stonegate. That's why, you know, people say, how come sometimes you guys are so offensive from the stage? Um, you know, there's a reason. And the reason is because the gospel is offensive and it confronts, but it's easy to sometimes 
miss that and, 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 and worry about the crowd. But listen to what Jesus says. This is incredibly dangerous. Go to verse 43, verse 43. I, I would tell you that this is the passage that, that d- explains why someone who is going through a hellacious season of life can come to church and be enlightened and then we put them up on stage to share their testimony of their newfound freedom. And then three years later, they're back in it deeper than they were. Okay, watch this. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'm going to return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. So then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I, I don't have to wonder what's happening there because I've seen it happen too many times. People come into the church, people come into a movement, they are enlightened by it, they feel moved by it, they feel excited by it, but because nothing has foundationally and fundamentally and completely changed on the inside and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, their next phase of life is worse than the one they just came from. It's, I mean, this happens all the time. It happens in marriages. It, it happens when, when all of a sudden someone's marriage falls apart. Then they come to church and they Christian mingle and they find someone that they love. And then the next thing you know, their next marriage is worse than the last one because they have only experienced love and the enlightenment of church and not experienced the change of a soul. It happens all the time. Happens every time when a drug addict shows up at church. Happens every time when a porn addict shows up at church. Happens every time when a workaholic shows up at church and starts weeping and crying because he feels the presence of the spirit and he repents in sackcloth and ashes and he comes to the front and he writes on the stage and he weeps and his family gets in the car and they say, daddy is saved. No, he's not. He's had a moment. It was called... um, a moment in, uh, you know, the, uh, what was the movement called where all us guys went to Cowboy Stadium and all that kind of stuff? Promise keepers. So we all went and made seven promises. And then all of a sudden, nobody knows where those cards are anymore. It happens all the time. I think that's what he's talking about. That my conviction is he's talking about people who have experienced something that is historical, literally in their day and time. They are wrapped up in it. They are seeing it. And he's warning them, enlightenment is not the real deal. And you can be surrounded by it, but you'll still fall away from it. And Jesus warns you, your next situation in life will be worse. You can write this down. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, 1 John 2, 19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. They went out from us because they were not of us. Remember the parable Jesus told when uh, he said, the enemy went out and he sowed tares among the wheat. And then the tares grew up with the wheat. And it was only in the end when the reaping came that they t- the wheat was reaped and the tares were thrown away. They grew up together, the wheat and the tares. I remember Bailey Smith years, decades ago, preaching a message about salvation, about the wheat and the tares. And he'd be like, are you a tear? Are you a tear? And I'm like, I'll get saved again. Just quit yelling at me. So um, let's look at the last part of this. I'll let you go. Enlightened is not the normal word for salvation. Just a clarity for you. Enlightened in the scriptures is not the normal word for salvation. It never says repent and be enlightened, ever. It says repent and be saved. 
And number two, enlightenment can lead to salvation, but it is not necessarily salvation. Cautious with my words, but you, you don't walk up to somebody. Here's where we get it wrong. If someone has been moved and enlightened, you don't walk up to them and say, I'm gonna tell you what, if you don't get past your enlightenment and get salvation, you're burning. I mean, that, that's probably not gonna work. But if you would work with the enlightenment and work towards salvation, that will work. Okay, that, that will work. So there, you know my opinion. I don't think that passage of scripture has anything to do with a Christian, a true believer committing apostasy. As a matter of fact, my conviction, mine, mine alone, you're gonna have to own it someday if it's yours or reject it if it's not. I do not believe your salvation is yours to lose. I do not believe it is yours to walk away from. You neither saved yourself. Again, this is me. This is my study in my life. Okay, this is not what I learned in seminary. This is me wrestling it to the ground in my own life. Salvation is by grace. It is not something you can earn. It is not something you can lock. It is not something you can throw away. As a matter of fact, I firmly believe that if you try to walk away from Jesus because something happened that embittered you, I believe, I believe Jesus will take you home. I do. My best friend died at the age of 20, suddenly, and he was my spiritual mentor. And I firmly believe that God said to my friend, no more, no more. You may say, woof. That's rough. That's me. You don't have to own it. You can walk out and say, I don't like that. That's fine. But my salvation is not something I can just throw away. He saved me. He has stamped me. He has owned me. He's sealed me by the Holy Spirit. And if it, it, it's no more different than if my son tried to walk away from me and say, I am no longer your son. Yeah, he is. Yes, he is. I may want to kill him, but he's still... My son, understand? So anyways, that's that passage. Next time we're together, we'll talk about the sufficiency of the priesthood of Jesus and it is phenomenal. We'll probably take a couple weeks to do that. Father, thank you for the attentiveness of these men. Please bless them. Um, man, just the, the opportunity that's in front of them with everyone they're gonna run into today um, to share the gospel in word and deed. I pray that they'd preach well. I thank you that there is a sufficient priesthood in Christ and we'll look into that. But uh, thank you for Hebrews. Thank you for the challenge of having to wrestle with difficult passages. And, and, uh, and I hope that every time we wrestle through a difficult passage, it brings us back to what is never changing and what is never challenging. And that is the truth that Christ came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. So bless these men in that walk today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.